Hello everyone and welcome back to another mini-sode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Lydia Jordan. And I'm Sarah Shaw and we're super excited to be back with our second mini-sode. Um, we really liked recording these because it gave us a chance to just chat about what's going on in, in film today and, and talk about some topics we don't usually get to talk about instead of analyzing us one specific movie, um, just talking about the film industry as a whole and what's happening in Hollywood. So we thought we would take a moment to kind of piggyback off of what we discussed last week and and um or I guess I don't know when this is gonna come out so last time I guess but um but yeah we're gonna talk about some fun stuff give some more hot takes uh sorry not sorry on that note but um yeah it'll it'll be fun so uh we brought up some things that I thought was interesting last time that I thought deserved a little bit more attention so we can talk about that today and it'll be fun but before we get started uh Lydia what are we drinking today it's actually so good (laughs) I'm really excited about it it is so good um and thank you for asking I totally forgot the name but I looked it up that's what stopped the recording earlier so uh (laughs) oops um, but today we're drinking a casino, which I didn't know, but it is a daisy, a type of, I think they're called like daisy cocktails or something like that. Did you see oh, that? Oh, yes, I did, but I didn't really know what, cute. I didn't know what that meant. So it's like an aviator, but I think the point is that it's like gin or some other hard spirit and then some type of like liqueur and then lemon. Um, and so this one is really great. It's literally... I mean, it's three ingredients, right? Three ingredients. the garnish, so love that. And it's just a London-style dry gin, um, Luxardo, which is why I looked up a recipe, because I bought Luxardo, and I was like, what the fuck do I do with this? So the Luxardo (laughs) maraschino liqueur, and then lemon juice, and that's it. It's really tart, super refreshing. It's so good, and it's funny that you mentioned that, because I went to go buy the Luxardo today for this cocktail, and I was, like, at my liquor store, and I was like, do you guys have, like, a mini bottle of Luxardo? And they they were like, sometimes we do, but we don't today, and I was like, okay, fine, I guess I'll just have to, like, figure out what to do with this, like, ginormous bottle, because I have to make, like, one drink with it, but I don't know what else to use it for. And they were like, well, if you need, like, a creative recipe, like, to make in the future, um, I highly recommend this cocktail called the Casino. (laughs) That's useless to me because that's what I'm making they today. Did not. They did not. That is so funny. And they're like, yeah, it's like three ingredients. And I was like, I know, that's what I'm making today. They're and they're like, like, oh. That's why I bought this. And I'm like, next, give me the next option. They're like, that's all we got for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I found some other good ones. I just Googled like Luxardo recipes because I got it for actually a tiki cocktail. Ooh. Quite a bit in tiki cocktails, um, according to my father. So uh, that's part of why I, I bought this, so I could have it on hand when he came to visit. But um, yeah, this recipe was so good. I'm. I think this might be like my new signature drink. I loved it that much. I know. One, I will say, your dad is the tiki cocktail king, so I totally trust him on that note. And two, this is like such a good um, summer drink. And I think if like if you also don't want to do like a super heavy spirit like you could probably use vodka for this too if you just like wanted something like really like light and doesn't have a flavor to really bring up the maraschino I don't think it would um I don't really think it would make that much of a difference you might lose the juniper flavor a little bit which makes it really good but it's it's super tasty and it's not too sweet because of the lemon so highly recommend this one really easy drink and um it's gonna be fun super easy breezy (laughs) Just like this episode. Just like this episode, <laughs> as you can tell. Wow, um, what a perfect segue. I know. 
Um, so today we're going to just talk about a couple of fun things that at least I think are as interesting. So first thing I want to talk about, because I feel like we've been seeing a rise of this a lot in, in the film industry, not just in, in movies, but in TV, is kind of the rise of the remake. And I feel like we've been seeing so many remakes um, recently, and I, I wanted to kind of highlight something that I've been talking to Lydia about forever since I've started watching it. It's a TV show called Irma Vep. And um, comparing this kind of show to a lot of how movies are being remade is super fascinating. The show has to be one of the most meta TV shows I've ever seen. It's literally a remake of the 1996 film of the same name, which is about a French film crew remaking the 1916 silent serial film. The Vampires, which the main character in that serial is Irma Vep. So it's like this remake of a remake about a remake. <laughs> it's like... I love that. Super interesting. And the TV show is actually written and directed by the same director that wrote and directed the movie from 1996. I from 1916 and I was like, what? Actually, he actually is in fact a vampire. He's a hundred and ten, if you can believe it. Um, but it's really interesting, and I think it's such an interesting take on the remake because it's the it's so meta and it's just so like beautifully pretentious in like the best like fun way. But it really highlights the absurdity and the stress of like the filmmaking process because it's filmed as like kind of this like like steady cam documentary style. Um, series about like about the film crew that's making this movie and it's really interesting and I think that's like it's it really like it talks about all of these topics of like how to remake movies with scenes that don't necessarily age well how to approach those topics how to change that in the remake and things like that and I think I've never seen anything like this before and it just really has me enthralled. Like, every episode, I'm just like, this is so fascinating, so unique. And I've really never seen any type of remake done this way before. And um, I just, I, I think it's really, like, it's really, really beautiful. And I I know, like, we've there's a lot of movies that are being remade right now. I don't, I mean, Top Gun, I don't know if it's necessarily a remake, but it's, like, a sequel, I would say. Definitely, like, pulling a lot of inspiration from the original movie also a really good way to do it is that they're not just doing the original movie and I don't know like I I don't know if you've noticed kind of like this rise of the remake in the past few years more so than in the past and like what you think about it yeah I mean I think so many remakes I'm trying to even just like list a couple there have been so many it's like how to where do you even start like I think Toy Story putting out another one recently too is like very interesting that was you know a seminal classic of our childhood coming out in like 1995 or whatever but it's interesting to see um us kind of continuing to come back to these same stories I know that there's a Cinderella remake like live action remake in the in the works um we've seen quite a few I would say live action remakes of like cartoon things which I think is also very very interesting um West Side Story I think was one of the big remakes that came out last year that was like a lot of I think that was kind of a flop. I think, not, yeah, you know. and you know, I there there was a lot that I actually really liked about that movie. I um that came to my mind as well. I I think it was really cinematically very beautiful. I mean, it's a Steven Spielberg film, and he took he actually did took a lot of like care into like making this more culturally appropriate. And I think that was one thing that I did like about that movie that got a little bit overlooked with some of the like there there was some casting drama with with the guy that plays Tony obviously with Ansel Elgort so that I think overshadowed a lot of what they were trying to do and I think it that movie the original version of that movie 
obviously something that we talked about in our Breakfast at Tiffany's episode. It utilized the same thing. It has a lot of, you know, white actors in brown face. And I think uh, Rita Moreno is the only Latina actress or actor um, in the movie. And I think remaking it and actually casting racially appropriate people was super important. I think that was a really important thing to do. I think the issue for me is no matter how much care was taken into doing that movie properly, you still have a white, you know, director directing it. And so, I I mean, I think he had really good consultation and it sounds like he did a lot of research and did a lot of care into having people brought on this set to, like, make sure it was culturally appropriate. But still, you have, you don't have, like it's still going to be, there's still going to be some disconnect there, in my opinion. And and I say this as a huge Steven Spielberg fan, so it's, like, hard for me to, you know, say that, but it's just, I I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, like, I think the, the idea was there, and I think the, the care was definitely correct and like, the direction they were trying to go, but it's still, like, how much how much does this matter if you still have a white male director directing this movie about a culture he doesn't actually know or understand. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's a good question. Um, I think we see this a lot <laughs> um, of, you know, and I think things have gotten better of having more diverse voices at the table, but I think there's also something to be said for knowing too when like maybe you as a director, even though you really believe in a project, wouldn't be the right choice. Maybe then you get to be the executive producer or something else. And you can spotlight someone else who is going to be able to capture that experience or has that background that you don't. So I'd love to see that in the future. Because I do think that there's, like you said, like a lot of things that are being done better or being done well. But I think that part of white privilege is also acknowledging that you don't have to be the person to do that. There's a lot of other people who do really great work that you can elevate. You can still be part of the process if you believe in it and care about it. But, like, maybe you don't need to be the director in, like, the face of the project. You know what I mean? No, I totally agree. (laughs) Especially at that point in your career, you know? Right. And I think, like, that's a great point that you make in that, like, Steven Spielberg has this, you know, reputation and the money to do projects that he wants to do and, like, do what pretty much do whatever he wants. Why not use that backing and that, like, that... um, what's the word I'm looking for that kind of like stability in in his in his ability to do those things in backing another director to do that movie and not necessarily taking the credit of for it yourself I mean you can executive produce it and throw the money at it and fund it but you can also like take the opportunity to highlight a new Latinx director who could probably be better at directing that movie and and I mean you know, it has the Steven Spielberg cinematography in it, and it's great, and I love it, but um, there's just something about the cultural kind of, I mean, they do a way better job in this movie than they do in the original, for sure, but that original movie came out in an era where, you know, it was the same kind of time period as Breakfast at Tiffany's came out, where they were doing yellow face, and this, that movie they were doing brown face, and um, I think it's important to remake those those types of movies. Just you have to have the right people at the helm, in my opinion. Um, so that's that's something um, on that note. But I think you know, again, like we talked about this a little bit last time. But now that you've seen it, Top Gun came out, and I think they approached that remake really well. I mean, it's not a remake, but yeah, I thought it was perfect. 
I loved it. Um, I think this is an update from last time because I think last time we recorded, I hadn't seen it yet. I've seen it now. I loved it. Like this might, I don't know, film cinephiles out there, you might give me, you know, some flack for this, but I, I consider it a 10 out of 10. It was everything that I came for and I really liked it. It actually had a really interesting plot. Um, the problems were interesting. I thought it was cast well. It was, you know, a lot more diverse this time, which was great to see. And Overall, it was it was everything that I looked for in an action movie, and I thought it was great. It was, you know, is it, like, the best cinema ever? No, but, like, for what I was looking for with a Top Gun movie, it was exactly what I wanted. It was perfect. Yeah, it was great, and I think, like, to that point, it's also kind of to the point of, like, a person who did the original or someone who's established not being center stage. Like, I think Tom Cruise did a really good job at, like, sharing the scenes with his other actors. Like, it wasn't totally just about him. And I think it was definitely more of, like... I mean, he's definitely the main character and, like, the hero of the story. But there is more... He The way that they did it was, like, they gave, they gave a platform to this, like, ensemble of young actors to also shine in that movie. And I think that was a really good way to do it, of, like, have him there to, like, guide everybody but not necessarily be center stage the whole time. And, which is correct. Like, he's older and he's already done Top Gun and it's, like, you know, he's in it the perfect amount for it to be, like, a great throwback. But the story is completely different than the original. I think that's, like, awesome. I just, I love it. And I think, to your point of cinephiles giving you flack about it or whatever, I agree with you, like, Cinema, like, as, we, as we've hammered home so many times, is a form of, of escapism, and it's simply, like, the point of movies is to entertain, and I think if a movie does that in a way where you're leaving it being like, that movie was a 10 out of 10, then it did its job. I mean, not every movie is supposed to be this, like, reflective, meaningful. introspective, <laughs> <Yeah>. meaningful <laughs> existential experience some of it can just be like wow that was a damn cool action movie and I think that's what this did and it did it very very well and I loved every minute of it I was totally engaged super enthralled so yeah I but I think it's a good question I I do think it is interesting the rise of the remake because I do think that there is a certain place for it like you brought up a really interesting use case or edge case where maybe it's a movie that has like it's important to our popular culture, but maybe it was done in a time where they couldn't do it to the full potential for whatever reason. And I think that that is like, then I think a remake can be really interesting because it's like, you know, it's a story that we all know, but we're re-examining it with, with like a different lens. And I think that can be interesting where I have a problem with the rise of the remake is when it's just like, you're not pushing the envelope on anything. Like it's clearly just regurgitating but not as well, like the Lion King, the other Lion King that they did, which was just the worst. Like, nothing about it was creative or original. Yeah, they had some, like, great talent on it, but, I mean, nothing that they were doing was better than, than I think, the, the version that came out, you know, what, in the early 2000s. Like, the staging was terrible. The way that they set up the shots was terrible. Like, none of it was good. <laughs> no. Why? Why would you do this? Yeah. No, I totally <laughs> it such, agree. It's such a great film. <laughs> Especially because, like, we, you know, you get remakes of these movies that are considered classics, and you kind of think to yourself, like, why try to, you know, remake perfection? Like, why do something that's so, like, you know, it's so, like, ingrained in its time, and it's so important and nostalgic to a certain group of people, 
why remake that? Why not just leave it as is? You know, what comes to, well, another movie that comes to mind, which is very old, is the early 2000s or early 2010s remake of Footloose, which was literally just word for word, like the same movie as the original, and it was terrible. And it's just <laughs> like, why remake Footloose? Why? Like, that movie is just weird from the 80s. Like, why? And it's, it is what it is. Like, it's an 80s movie. Like, why remake that? <laughs> but I, you know, like, to your point, like, this kind of rise of the live action you know, movies of the Disney cartoons that they've, that Disney's been pouring a bunch of money in and doing, I think, yeah, like, I think they really missed the mark on Lion King, like, I think it was really bad. One movie, Aladdin like, was also a little weird. Aladdin was really <laughs> weird. The one thing I will say that I think the live-action Aladdin did well was giving a different perspective to Jasmine as, like, an independent woman trying to make her own decisions in this, like, it was more just the genie. Remember yeah. Remember when to completely redo the genie because he was so scary? Yeah. Remember that? When <laughs> yeah, they, like, too. tested it with audiences and, like, had to, like, redo <laughs> all of his scenes because it was, like, terrifying. Yeah, I do remember that. And I, I don't know. I just, like... It's just as funny. This is also a hot take, but I'm, Will Smith is, like, not it for me right now, so... I just, um, I him as the genie. I think you're not alone in that. I yeah. Think, uh... I think Chris Rock would agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too soon, sorry. <laughs> no, never too soon. Oh my um, gosh. But kind of on that note of, um, well, yeah, kind of on that note of, you know, things being great, but not necessarily like this cinematic revelation. I wanted the second topic I kind of wanted to talk about that we very briefly touched on that was inspired by in our last episode was um, the kind of rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, because especially because Thor Love and Thunder just came out and I don't know if it's doing well. It looked like it was doing okay, but I hadn't really like it's making money, but I hadn't really heard like much about it. Um, so just to preface, I am a huge fan of the Marvel, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I recently had my wisdom teeth out and spent a weekend very sedated watching all of them in timeline order. Yeah, <laughs> and it was incredible. a re- really, really good time. I um, There are a lot of movies in it that I don't like, but I don't think are very good. There's some characters and some storylines that I really love, one of them being... Um, the Scarlet Witch. I think her like character arc is probably one of the best character arcs like in cinema right now, um, which I'll talk a little bit about. But um, there is a I, I kind of want to talk about this in in this vein of like this rise of this very um, clear franchise of like this franchise is existing for like mass consumption. I think that's kind of the point. I mean, there is a lot of intri- intricacies to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I think there is a lot of critique about it as, like, this, the purpose of this machine is to, like, make movies that make money. And yep, 100%. that's what it's doing. And I think so, one, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So I read an article, Martin Scorsese did an interview a while back um, where he basically eviscerated the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He said that um, cinema... He basically said that it's not cinema. He says the Marvel movies are not cinema. He said cinema is an art form that brings you the unexpected in superhero movies. Nothing is at risk. He said that um, they are everything that the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, Claire Denis, uh, Spike Lee, Ari Aster, Catherine Bigelow, and Wes Anderson are not. And so he basically just like really went went after these movies. And he said that cinema is a film. Cinema to him is. Um, 
and also filmmaking is about spiritual revelation and the complexity of the people and their contradictory and sometimes paradoxical natures. Um, he said that you don't really see those types of characters in Marvel movies, which is what makes them not kind of fall into what he believes should be true in like, you know, quote unquote, pure cinema. He talked about this, uh, the concept of the rise of the franchise, which I thought was really interesting. And um, he, he said, which I, this is like a really interesting point that I never thought about, the last type of franchise that he believes was a successful cinematic franchise was the films of Alfred Hitchcock. And because, and he considers oh. Hitchcock a franchise because, like, the gargantuan event of, like, a Hitchcock movie coming out, it was, like, there was so much, like, press around it. They were always so big. All of them are generally, like, very similar in style. And it, it had that same quality of made-for-mass-consumption, but didn't really... It didn't sell out to this idea of it's the purpose of it is for consumerism. It's still this, like, pure cinema is because the person at the helm of that was Hitchcock, who was you know, a cinematic, like, that was cinematic filmmaker. So it's it's really interesting, and he said that, like, that compared to this modern film franchise experience, which is very specifically made formulaic for mass consumption and to make money, it's very different, and he, he, he kind of compared it as, like, the film industry's version of the fall to capitalism is... And the result of that is the modern film franchise and which Marvel is at the helm of that. And so he kind of he kind of really like went after these Marvel movies. And it was really interesting to hear that from somebody who's such a pure, you know, cinema filmmaker. I want to get your take on that because I have some thoughts about his um, his opinion, but I wanted to hear what you think. I'm definitely struggling with it a little bit. I do. I do understand where he's coming from, like 100 percent. I do think that. I I get what it is that he's saying, but I do think there have been other successful franchises since Hitchcock. Like, yes. Like, I would say, for example, I mean, maybe not now, but I think that, um, like, Lord of the Rings is what I would consider one that's very successful. I mean, that was also adapted from books. I don't know if, if he's looking for, like, original... Well, some are Hitchcock. Do you so consider Lord of the Rings a franchise though because I don't really like I don't know yeah I mean I I get what like I understand why you're saying that but I'm wondering like for me a franchise is like an entire machine around like the purpose of the production of the like production company or is to like make these specific movies just forever like they just are movies that continue going on and I just, like, I don't see Lord of the Rings that way, specifically because I don't connect Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Like, I think if you put them all in one, then yes, it is definitely a franchise. That's when it kind of becomes franchise style. I would put them together. Okay. Well, then because, that then yes, then I would yeah. agree with you, because I think yeah. once The Hobbit movies got made, it became a franchise. Yeah, well, and it's the same way with, like, the other one that I would say, too, that I think was successful and still cinematic would be... Um, Star Wars, yes. like the original ones, like the original series. But I yeah. think now, like the new ones where they have, you know, the show and then the, the more recent ones, like I would consider that part of a franchise. But Absolutely. I think, like, I think that they also still have a lot of validity and are really popular. So I, I, I think it's interesting because especially when it comes to superhero stories, I kind of disagree that there aren't things at stake. I think that we're seeing superhero films that are much more nuanced than kind of the original, like, you like very black and white like 
good versus Hero evil. versus villain. Yeah. Like, things are a lot more nuanced now. And I think that to just, I don't know, I feel like what he's saying really undermines the reason that people are drawn to it. Because, yes, there is a formula. Yes, there is a goal to make money. And I think there is something there that's working. But I do think that regardless of that, the some of the stories that have been put out, especially most recently, I know that it's not... I don't think it's um, Marvel, but the new Batman film with Zoe Kravitz and um, Robert Pattinson, like that was incredibly done. I was really impressed. I still think that there's more to these stories. There's something that's interesting because it's a lot of it is stuff that we know. Like there's, you know, there's a kernel of truth in it. Like there's this understanding of like what Gotham City is or these different worlds that have been created that we can kind of go back to but again it, it's still to me it's a valid re- reflection of our society it's a valid reflection of like who we are as people and kind of like the tropes that we see in the world and like yes there is an element of it that is like very escapist but at the same time like I don't I think that why it continues to be so popular is because it does resonate like if people weren't buying into this if people didn't want to see it the the franchise wouldn't be so successful and I think that that it's like you know I I think there's something that is appealing to it I think to diminish that would be to diminish like what it is that people are resonating with and I think that's like holding up a mirror to our society and the things that we're facing collectively as these stories have evolved over time and I think it's still valid I think that I don't think you can count it out (laughs) So I totally agree. And like, I think the Batman movie, which is, you know, similarly part of like the DC franchise of like Justice Justice League movies um, was incredibly well done. And I think all these like, you know, you you get with those movies, you're getting like the new Batman movie is definitely a film noir. Like I would argue that to the end of my day. And then you're also getting, like, with The Dark Knight, you're getting these very nuanced villains and it takes on, like, the Joker and with the Joker movie. Like, you get this opportunity to in- interpret these villains in a, in very specific ways. Like, you have Heath Ledger's virgin, version, which is this psychopath maniac whose entire purpose, ha- he, there's no reason or rhyme to his madness. He's just a villain his purpose is to incite chaos. And then you've got the Joker, who's like the movie with Joaquin Phoenix, which is like a very, very interesting look at like this mental health aspect of, of um, you know, a character becoming, kind of turning into a psychopath, which is, you know, in dealing with any type of like psychotic struggles. And I think that's like, you get the opportunity to analyze those characters and and the, the effects that those have on society and, and people that are, you know, going through a lot of that kind of stuff today and I think with the Marvel movies specifically yeah they're very like glitz glamour like pizzazzy in your face with colors and special effects and all that stuff I think that on that note like you know your sister who works in visual effects like there's a lot to be said about pushing the boundaries with visual effects like with Lord of the Rings we saw that was kind of like the first big you know movie trilogy to do that and you get these movies now that you can't, you don't really see your, I don't know if it's just Martin Scorsese not being able to do that with his <laughs> the types of movies that he makes, but you're getting the opportunity to like explore very creative types of um, uh, computer editing and visual effects with these movies. And to his point of like, again, kind of to your point of like things not being at risk, I definitely disagree with that. I think that in the comics and in like the original superhero stories, yes, like sure, the, the whole point of those comics is like, good versus evil, allegory for the Cold War or World War II, like, 
yes, like there's, you know, the superhero is going to win in the end. There's nothing really at risk, even if it seems like there is. I think the stories that we're getting, I totally agree with you, are very, very nuanced now. And I think, you know, I was thinking about like the, like I had mentioned earlier, the Scarlet Witch, I like the Wanda character with WandaVision and her kind of arc through the Avengers is really interesting because it's, it's a look at a person who is a, is a superhero, but kind of is portrayed later on as becoming a bad guy, but it's more like the her character is very much like the the effect of grief and loss on a person and how society just doesn't really have the tools or the willingness to help people that are struggling with loss. And I think that's a really nuanced and interesting look at a person and I think you can't just say like, oh, they're good or evil. And I think that we're seeing that a lot in these movies. And, you know... For example, like we're seeing a superhero superhero movie like The Black Panther, which was nominated for an Oscar because it's a it's a movie. Sure, it's a superhero movie that, you know, you kind of know who's going to win in the end. But it's a movie about like, okay, what if these African tribal nations were never colonized and able to develop and expand their own technologies without you know, Western colonization, like, what would that have looked like? What society, what would that society have looked like? And that movie portrays that. And I think it's really, really beautifully done. And I think, you know, and I think like in those, in, in a lot of those Marvel movies, you're getting also directors that aren't like Jerry Bruckheimer franchise directors. They're actually hiring like Taika Waititi, who's a very nuanced writer and director. And, and, you know, extremely smart in how he, he develops his characters. Chloe Zhao actually directed The Eternals. Like, you're getting these directors who are more indie directors directing these movies. And um, I think the director of Black Panther was, a you know, a black director from San Francisco. And, like, you're, you're seeing people like that given the opportunity to, like, helm these huge projects and bring their own take to it. And I think with that, it, it gives those people an opportunity to bring those ideas that we what we love so much about those indie movies that are so introspective into this like franchise ring which makes them more nuanced and I think you can't really rule that out I mean it people are drawn to them like you said and for a reason and I don't think it's fair to say that like they're not cinema because cinema is a form of escapism if people are going into the audiences for a couple hours to watch a bunch of superheroes fight bad guys and they like it like that's escapism and I think you know that's the point of movies is to entertain it's not necessarily to you don't necessarily have to do some type of you know revolutionary introspective existential character for a movie to be a movie I think if it's you know put on film and in a, mo- in a movie theater then it's a movie so yeah. <laughs> I don't know that's no, my take I totally on it I agree I completely agree. I mean, because you said it was Martin Scorsese who said that, right? Yeah, who I who I very res- much respect yeah. as a filmmaker. Although, did you watch the 2019 movie The Irishman? Because that, to me, was a story that, like, we didn't need to have that made. That was so fucking boring. I was going <laughs> to talk about was he was comparing, like, these movies in his in his article. This article that he did this interview for came out when that movie came out. And he was talking about that and then talking about how, like, the Irishman is the type of story that, like, needs to be told. And I'm like, I just think that's a bit... No, it didn't. No, and I think that's a bit, you know, self-satisfying because why, like, who does he, who is he to say that you don't, you can't give these young, new, independent filmmakers the opportunity to make these giant franchise experiences nuanced and and rule them out because they're not the kind of cinema you grew up with yet all you're doing with the Irishman 
is get in your group of friends to make a mob movie that's been made before and and you you're using you're using the Five same hours long. yeah and you're using the same special effects just to make them look younger but it's like the same guys you've been working with for 30 40 for years 30. Yeah. So I just, I mean, I'm like, I don't really like. I struggle with it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like uh, to to a certain point, like I do think that there is something. Like I also agree that mass consumerism and the rise of just you know churning out these franchise films, like it it does feel like a little bit gross sometimes. But at the same time, I think to your point, I think that Marvel has done a good job of trying to elevate different stories create nuanced universes that really do celebrate um especially like minority groups which again like the irish man is literally all white people all old white white man yes yeah and so i think it's like yes i understand where martin scorsese is coming from to a certain extent but i think similar to like steven spielberg and west side story it's kind of that self-awareness to look at yourself when you're talking about these things and say like Let's just take, like, a quick check-in. Like, are the stories that I'm telling, like, super important? And am I the best person to be telling them? And, like, acknowledging that, like, your your perception of things as, like, a white man might be different than someone else. Yeah, <laughs> so. and, like, are the stories that I'm telling what audiences want to see right now? Like, I mean, I don't really... I think especially during, like, COVID, I don't think, like, a giant really, like, intense melodramatic introspective existential indie movie is like what people really wanted to see people just like wanted to like get out of being like miserable and the world being so heavy and just like escape into a movie of like superheroes winning and like good succeeding and like some type of hope being in the world like I think that's okay to want that in a movie and it yeah I mean I I definitely I just I definitely agree with you like I I think it's it it's challenging you know, established white male directors who did push the envelope for cinema back in the 60s to be like, okay, maybe it's our turn to bow out. Like, the, you know, like, you know, the studio system had to bow out when we were young. Maybe it's their time. Maybe they are the studio system. If he's going to go... I feel like this is a hot take. I don't know. I'm sorry. I know. I just, that's how I feel. And I... I kind of agree. I kind of wonder. It's kind of hard because I respect Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. Like, they're two of my favorite filmmakers and I love their movies. But sometimes you got to know when to let go. <laughs> and Or to your point, like, maybe you don't need to go entirely. But when it's when you have a platform and you have credibility to allow other people to really grow and rise in their own careers, I think what I struggle with is... Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, both as directors, really seem to be the people who want to hold on control as long as they can, and they have still this kind of obsession with a certain image. I could be wrong, but this is just kind of my perception of like the way that they present themselves and the take that they have on certain things, where I just think that they're at a point in their careers where like you can use that influence to really help other people and to uplift other stories and you don't need to be the big like name on the marquee anymore you know and I think that it's like you can still be involved and still really love movies and and film but maybe you're involved with it in a different way and that's okay too and like maybe that's a a point in your career where it's not about you pushing the limits of uh, as being a director anymore but it's you like helping other directors to become the best or using your influence to allow films to be told that have a really interesting story that maybe you're not the right person to tell that story. 
I totally agree. I totally agree. And they, you might find that they'll actually be respected by younger audiences more if they are actively doing that and, and giving a voice to those people that might be the right people to tell that story. Um, well, that's wow, kind of all I have. <laughs> <laughs> Just to wrap up your section, I my thought was that, like, if Martin Scorsese is going to, like, go ham on a franchise, the one that I would agree with him on is, like, the Fast and Furious franchise. It's time for it yeah, to end. It's <laughs> like, time. That's like, what's run its course. I'm like, how many do we need? Like, how many car movies do we need, really? Like, one was enough. <laughs> I think once they went to Tokyo and were drifting around parking garages, I was done. Yeah. That was it for me. You know what other movie I also don't need to come out? The new Avatar. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) That needs its own special episode because I have opinions about that movie. Oh my god. I agree with you 1000%. Cameron is another relic that like you don't need to keep making these like epic movies anymore like we're good I just okay (laughs) what was so fascinating to me and you bring up this really good point and we're gonna go on we're gonna just ride this tangent for a minute and this might be a hot take but I will make the argument that Avatar was such an important like generational like conflict like I I nobody our age liked that movie and everyone above the age of 45 loved that movie my dad thinks that's like the best movie ever made and I don't know why I'm like that movie was three hours too long and I get it it's about like the the military industrial complex and the rise of capitalism and the destruction of like planet earth and climate change I get it there are other ways to make that kind of movie, and it doesn't need to be made by James Cameron. <laughs> you know what was a great movie about that same topic that was far better done? Fern Gully, and I stand <laughs> by that. <laughs> yes. Done that. You heard it here first, people. Fern Gully got it right. Was it Fern, Fern Gully or Fern Gulch? I can't remember. You know, let me look. Either way, <laughs> Fern Gully, the last rainforest, um, or like the. Um, uh, but yeah, I I could not agree more. I think that it, that is a very interesting generational divide because I I remember how much great press it got when it came out. I think the reviews of it overall were incredibly positive. But yeah, none of no one our age liked it. Like it did not resonate with the younger generation because it was like straight up cap. Like it was so it wasn't nuanced at all. Everything that it was like it was very like boomer. It's it's like. It, it's it's like boomer um like ego like you know what I mean it's like that weird vibe about like sustainability in the planet and it's just like no this is so out of touch and, yeah like, and it's the whole boomer like it was the whole it was like a whole three-hour movie about the boomer line like oh well it's up to your generation to fix Gotta it because we your, fucked it up and I'm what? like, okay, like we get it. If you want to actually watch something meaningful about the planet, go watch Sir David Attenborough's like docu-series, yeah, Our Planet, Earth. or Planet Earth, or something like, oh, something that so we actually good. respect, not made by fucking James Cameron, who I just like don't like. Like, I just, yeah, I don't know. And I, just, and I just, and I just remember, I just like, I just, I did not like that movie. And I know that's going to be a hot take. Everyone thought it was some like visual effect, like masterpiece. I just... I didn't love it. I don't really, I just don't really, I just didn't care. It was, it was, 
it was like they did special effects for the sake of special effects. And it like, and it doesn't, it didn't matter to anything in the story. It was distracting. And honestly, the message at the end of it just, it, it wasn't right. Like it didn't hit right. It, it just was like, again, it was incredibly problematic. The characters were super one dimensional. Like none of it was nuanced. It was just so like trite. And I couldn't believe how much like press and award yeah. buzz and it, it got. It also was like Ugh. this weird, like, I don't know if it was, it was probably unintentional, but just this idea of like nativism and like the fetish of that. And it was just, it was really strange. And I just, yeah, I couldn't get on board with that movie. And, and the irony of it being a movie about the destruction of capitalism, yet the point of that movie was to be, like, setting up a franchise to make money. <laughs> like, that was... I'm pretty sure it did make the... It was, like, the highest box office gross of, like, any movie or something like that. And and that was the goal. And, and that was like, the goal. It's just <laughs> ironic. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just, like, it just goes to show you, it's, like, clearly you don't believe that if that's what your goal was. And I want to just yeah. highlight the biggest slap in the face to James Cameron, which I loved. It was the same year that movie came out. He was nominated for Best Director, as was his ex-wife, Catherine Bigelow, for Zero Dark Thirty. Or, I'm sorry, no, for The Hurt Locker. And she won. She was the first female director to win the Oscar for Best Director and totally deserved it the hurt locker like i'm not a big war movie person that movie is so good it is incredible and she is and she also did zero dark 30 which is another incredible movie and um just 20 out of 10 for Catherine bigelow so shout out to her for no reason but just because she's awesome but um yeah i just i am you're right. I hate it's that crazy movie. It's <laughs> to think about that movie coming out at the same time as hurt locker because like again it's it's like these things are not, like, you, uh, I don't know. It's just, again, it's weird chronologically to think about that. <laughs> like, it makes me upset. <laughs> yeah. I, that was a big movie that was just, like, it, it was, like, the big, like, our version of the generational divide that, like, they saw 40 years prior in Hollywood with, like, the divide of, like, the old Hollywood movies versus, like, the young, like, 60s, like, Nouvelle Vague movies. This was our version of that. I think this movie was so polarizing for generations. <laughs> and it just, it was a boomer film, for sure. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Do, like, Martin. a deep dive on this sometime. Yeah, I honestly would love that. Um, Except I don't want to have to rewatch this movie because yeah. it was just the worst. <laughs> One time was enough for me. And, like, sorry, Dad, if you're listening, I I know you love this movie, but it wasn't my favorite. <laughs> just terrible. <laughs> I bet that now if you watch it too, like the special effects aren't even that good. So I know I'm kind of debating whether or not I'm going to see the new one. Like I'll probably watch it just to be like, what more could they possibly say? <laughs> like what more could they possibly have to say? Nothing good. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, well, on that note, I think that's kind of all I had for our hot takes mini-sode about you know, coming after one of two of the world's <laughs> most prolific directors, Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg today. But uh, sorry to my guys. I love you guys, but you got some, you did some things that I didn't love too much. So yeah, got some work to do friends. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for joining us for our, our second mini-sode. Um, we'll keep doing these sporadically through our, throughout our episode releases. Uh, we have fun whenever we have opinions about things <laughs> we're gonna just talk about it and record it and, and put it out there for you but and until then cheers, cheers.